0: contribute to what you were doing. So it would be offers of places to stay. Um, I received some secondhand Volvos along the way. (laughs) It's important to recognize that what I'm calling silent is also very close to what some people would think of as boredom. Or death. Yeah. It isn't.
1: Welcome to the second episode of Such That Cast. Let me start by saying a huge thank you to the many of you who wrote in with ideas, suggestions, and to my relief, some very kind words about the first episode. There are two things that I want to address. Uh, first of all, some of you commented that I came across as somewhat arrogant when talking about 95% of computer ethics being crap. I agree with this, and I just want to clarify that I'm certainly responsible of having contributed to that percentage. And really the underlying point, as Floridi put it, was that this is actually a sign that the discipline is healthy and that many attempts from different corners just shows the lively nature of the field. A second point concerns the episode interval, Many of you wrote that you can't really keep up with an hour-long episode every week, which also coincides with my realization of how much work it is to keep that pace. So I've decided to update the podcast on a bi-weekly basis from now on, and we'll just see how that goes. I'm also quite happy with the number of listeners so far, uh, without having any idea of what you expect There have been around a 1,000 listeners for the first episode, not really a huge number, but I hope this will increase now that Such That Cast is also available on iTunes, Stitcher, and a host of other podcast platforms. I also hope that you can all help me spread the word about this to any communities that you know could be interested. Okay, now to the second episode, in which I talk to Wendell Wallach, who is an ethicist at Yale University's Interdisciplinary Center for Bioethics, and a leading authority in the field of machine ethics. We had an absolutely lovely talk that lasted for more than two hours, so I had to cut out more than half of what we actually talked about. Interestingly, we never really got to talk much about the topic of machine ethics. This wasn't really intentional, but it does exemplify that part of what I want out of this podcast is to hear the stories that you won't hear anywhere else. You can read Wallach's book for his viewpoints on machine ethics, and then you can listen to Such that cast for his extraordinary and unconventional career path and his largely unpublished ideas about an ethics grounded in meditation practices. I really hope that Wallach's story can be inspirational to those of you who may not have a conventional background and to those of you who may not be immersed in academia. As Wallach shows, you can spend a decade being a spiritual guru, yet end up becoming a leading expert in a field of philosophy. I hope you will find this inspiring and enjoy listening to Wonderwall Wallet as much as I do. There we go. So this is Just Voice, is that right? That's right. I mean, I went through all that effort
0: to find my cleanest clothes and nothing. <laughs> Is this good enough or do I need to... uh, This is perfect, yeah. So I don't need to face that. I can face you and... It's perfect here. ...stare you down and...
1: (laughs) (coughs) Yeah, that is an interesting background you have. Um, So first of all, yeah, I'm sitting here with Wendell Wallach, uh, who is an authority in the field of uh, moral machines and uh, trying to implement ethics in future robots. Uh, we'll get back to that topic later on, but I am intrigued about your background. Uh, the few things I know, the few things I were able to dig out uh, is that you were the president and founder of two companies, uh, where Pepsi was one of your clients, mm-hmm. that you, your hobby is to build stained glass windows, that you've been meditating for over 40 years, and that you wrote a really interesting book back in 1978 called Silent Learning, The Undistracted Mind.
0: Was it interesting enough that you actually found it? <laughs> I found it. It was deep it. down there, but I haven't read it. But... Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> but all
1: of this makes for a rather interesting picture. So I want to hear more about your background and, and, and how did you start out?
0: Well, in many senses, I'm very much a product of the 1960s, the United States. and I was very much in the midst of both activism on, a politi- on the political front, and also um, what you might call the more spiritual, introspective inquiry that, oh, right. that was really set in motion during that period. Oh. Um, so I came out of graduate school at Wesleyan University with an interdisciplinary major in the social sciences, had uh, what some people might consider... Uh, a dramatic shift in my psyche in the in November of 1967, which was historically a seminal year in in many ways. In shifts of psyche, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fact, I was just reading an article in Vanity Fair about 1967 in haight Ashbury, which was right. uh, you know was something else. I was on the East Coast, so it was a somewhat different uh, different situation. But that, uh, that made me decide that I was interested in going to, uh, when I applied to graduate school, I originally planned on just applying to law schools, but I ended up pl- applying to both law schools and divinity schools. Oh, okay. Ended up going to Harvard Divinity School and uh, spent that year largely being a full-time activist. Uh, but one thing led to another, and uh, I ended up going to India immediately after that. I was back and forth in India quite constantly over about a decade or so. For spiritual reasons, mostly, or mainly spiritual interests, mainly meditation, mainly reflection. Um, it was different things at different stages. I mean, uh, the uh, the first I had an interest in both politics and spiritual interests, and tried to bring those together. When I first went to India, I actually um, I knew I was going to India. That wasn't the question, but the question was where, Right. and one event led to another and I ended up with an Indian guru who had millions of followers, and had a political movement and a spiritual movement going, and um, Turned out to probably have had a number of his disciples killed. Um, all kinds of other, oh, Jesus. you know, remarks. I mean, he got tried by the Indian government. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was an amazing story whereby I landed in Delhi only to be told that he had been arrested. Us Americans who knew nothing about what, were, what was going on were being asked to picket in Gandhi's house the next day. <laughs> you know, So... um so I was involved in that group and split from that, and was very critical of uh, in interacting with many other Americans who had also been wooed into something that they I don't think fully understood what they Right. What so they did would, it for shallow reasons, you thought? Or well, I, thought? I don't think anybody knew yet. You know, it right. was more like you know you were just dabbling in in meditation, and if you met you know a groovy sadhu and he. Um, made you feel like he understood something or you had some little experience interacting with him or you thought the mantra you were given was powerful. You know, there was any of 500 (laughs) different reasons. But I think people were also looking for community. You know, there were all kinds of things going on. Some people wanted power and they thought that they would, you know, have psyches that could, you know, affect others. And yeah, Yeah, there was was just such a wide variety of reasons that people were getting (laughs) involved in these things. But a lot of it was pretty much naivete. It wasn't like anybody had a great depth of understanding. So it's like anything else, that you're you're moving into this messy universe and it's, and it's taking time to sort through what's what and where's where. And I was a little bit older than a lot of those folks. Um, so, you know, I took on the role of being a little bit of a mentor very soon in terms of trying to sort through and people thought I had fairly decent discrimination. But one thing led to another and I I fell into more and more of a mentoring role within people who were interested in meditation and spiritual reflections. Mm -hmm. And that pretty much occupied me throughout the 70s. Uh, In the midst of that, I met an Indian gentleman, a doctor named R.P. Kaushik, and R.P. Kaushik, it's hard, you know, he's been dead now for um, more than about 30 years right now, hmm. so he's not a name that many people would know, but he had a little bit of, of the Socratic demeanor about him. Right. <laughs> he, um, he engaged in what he called inquiry, and that was pretty much in the Socratic vein of just taking apart everything, what yeah. do you mean by, you know, and it wasn't always about justice or those kinds of things, but uh, but it would be very much forcing people to see the underlying assumptions mm-hmm. in what they were were dealing with. But I think what was more important was pushing people back into seeing their own mental dynamics and getting in touch with with their mental dynamics. Mm-hmm. So he was a very interesting influence just in the sense that he was one of the few people who I thought was pursuing a spiritual path that was somewhat comparable to the kinds of questions I was asking. And a lot of our interaction over a few years, in retrospect, I would call it a kind of first person cognitive science, All right. you know, that it wasn't cognitive science in the empirical sense, but it was in an introspective mm-hmm. sense. And it was in the sense that one could both compare notes but also in the sense that at times there was a feeling that one was simultaneously exploring a shared state or a shared quality, Mm -hmm. and uh, maybe even intersubjective dynamics that were taking place. So that occupied me for about a decade, and in that I would go back and forth and spend time in India, in Europe, in America, Um, sometimes if Dr. Korshik was coming to Europe or America, we would travel together, sometimes I was very much on my own, ended up with a little bit of a following, I guess, I mean, you know, people who thought I knew more than probably I did know, (laughs) and I probably thought I knew more than I did know, but, you know, that was the That was the period and the time.
1: Did you have a job on the side or was this your living as well?
0: Strangely enough, this was my job. Wow. I won't say that I made a living in any grandiose sense, um, but you have to remember this was coming out of the latter years of the 60s and 70s. It's hard for people to quite grasp what that was. (laughs) But there was a kind of sharing and egalitarian quality going on. If people thought you were Doing something of value, they found ways to contribute to what you were doing. So it would be offers of places to stay. Um, I received some secondhand Volvo's along the way. You know, all kinds of, you know. So, so that strangely enough, I was able to sustain myself and come up with an airline ticket when I needed it, and never had a great deal of money, but that. Didn't seem to matter right. <laughs> very much, or at least it didn't matter for about a, for maybe close to a decade or so, six to eight years, I would say. But then something started to change around the end of the seventies, and I found that when I had never been before ever looked at anybody as if you know maybe they would contribute toward keeping me alive for another month or something like that. It wasn't that bad. I mean, it was, uh, it was actually, had. you know, we always had good clothes, always had what, what one needed. But, uh, and that maybe I was, in the way I was talking to people, imply that maybe they should help out. Then I realized <laughs> this, this was not working anymore. You okay. know, this had its time, right. and it had so. a, a certain charm about it, and it had an intensity and dynamic. But sometime around the end of the 70s, there was a fundamental shift in that quality. And it coincided with, you know, Ronald Reagan and welfare (laughs) cheats and uh, all kinds of other things were happening sociologically. But I also felt that the kinds of questions, the kinds of inquiry I'd I'd been having had a tremendous intensity. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was really, there was that sense that you were grappling with things that were real and something was at stake here. And suddenly I found that, well, a lot of the questions I was answering or responding to people with, I had done this. Right. You know, I had said this before. I'd often said this before to the same person. <laughs> and that quality, that quality was no longer there. It wasn't alive in me. Was, mm. And I think I was probably, you know, ready to move on. And maybe ready to get a little bit more materialistic.
1: <laughs> <laughs> As a child of the
0: materialist 80s, that
1: makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think I missed an
0: era. You know, it was kind of uh, I. I see it coming back. I, I see it with a number of people, and particularly in your generation, that there's some elements of that. Uh, but mm-hmm. it was its own time, its own you know, its own place. Yeah. So ostensibly, the way I I'd already you know published Silent Learning, the Undistracted Mind, the book you you saw, and that was that was a very short little pamphlet that was very pithy in terms of trying to share certain introspections about the nature of thought and thinking and the relationship between the body, mind and various psychological states. And it did it in a semi aphoristic kind of philosophical manner. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought I had a couple other books in my head that I was struggling to get out, and they're probably still stuck there somewhere. <laughs> Um, hated white-out, hated, you know, we were still in the, you know, the days of carbon paper and typewriters. And, you know, but word processors were just coming into being. Mm-hmm. Or, or the desktop computer, which would be the home word processor. So I decided I wanted to, you know, get a word processor. And um, I started going around to computer stores. I wasn't sure which one to buy, but most of them would let you sit at a machine for a few hours and figure it out. Oh, yeah. And I did, I I still wasn't sure, so I did this at about two or three stores. (laughs) And I was sitting at one with um, an Afghani gentleman, and he said, well, listen, why don't you just come and work with me? Wow. (laughs) And I I said, you know, well, what did he mean? Well, what what he meant was that he was going to give me a commission for anything I sold. There was no salary if I didn't sell anything. Okay, I see. But I didn't care. You know, the, there were these wonderful machines. I was going to get to play with them. Right, yeah. It was a kind of interdisciplinary universe because everybody was creating different kinds of software and yeah. so forth that were working, would work on them. And it was actually two months before at the IBM PC. Right. So the t- my timing was impeccable. Um, I didn't really care initially whether I was going to earn much money or not. I wasn't really thinking in those terms, even though I was probably near broke. But I hadn't thought very much in those terms for a few years. Uh, But to be honorable, in the process of playing with all these wonderful toys he had stashed around, um, I started contacting schools and universities and uh, asking them what they needed for computers. Right. And within months, I was a computer consultant to schools and universities. (laughs) And as I said, within months, the IBM PC came out. And I found, even though I didn't know a great deal, nobody else did either. (laughs) I mean, there was a very small group of, of, you know, nerds who had been active in that period. So people were craving anyone who knew anything about computers. And I had these commissions that were just, I mean, these were 40% commissions on computers that, you know, computers that weren't. All that cheap, you know. I was like a car salesman selling one if Inside. I sold one computer. <laughs> so that was very nice. So I made a I made a decent living doing that while I was largely just playing with machines. <laughs> right.
1: Was there like an internal tension then between your new self and the older, more sort of hippie self in a sense? <laughs> There's always been a bit of
0: a tension. I mean, I never thought of myself as a hippie. I was a, a little bit of an intellectual from the get go. Right. So I always. So hippies somehow implied somebody who was drugged out all the time or living in Haight-Ashbury or, you know, a merry prankster or something like that. And it wasn't that I didn't wear outrageous clothing (laughs) or, you know, at various times I, you know, Breathe tear gas in the streets of Berkeley, and was in strawberry fields, listening to Country Joe and the Fish and Janis Joplin, and I participated in all of that, but I never fully took on the identity of the countercultural hippie. There was a bit of the there was always a bit of the academic. There were elements in the political groups of the time who I felt very comfortable with who had Maoists and um, progressive labor. I mean, all kinds of different political orientations, which was very serious. Some of them were more reflective of the of leftist movements from the 1920s and 30s. Some thought that they were about workers. I mean, it was insane. You know? <laughs> um, I often thought that it was crazy when people went on and on with their ideology, because in America, it was more likely that somebody would if people were going to revolt, it was going to be more because there were Red Sox fans than that they bought into Marxist mumbo-jumbo. <laughs> you know, and I don't mean mumbo-jumbo in some absolute sense. I actually think Marx, in a strange way, was a remarkable humanist. You yeah. know, but, uh, but obviously, what all that got turned into was mumbo-jumbo. Yeah, exactly. You know? yeah. <laughs> so... That took me, I, I don't think we need to go into that whole period in any greater depth, but um, as you mentioned, uh, PepsiCo was, was one of our clients during those days. That was strange. Yeah, It was strange to be taking money when every dollar you knew you got from PepsiCo represented whatever, you know, profit from sugar wine. Yeah. You know, what we were doing was sort of fun with it. We had, we had done an interesting computer program. Uh, but it was clear to me that, that I was sort of finished with that. I had reached that point when, the, when those books were still stuck in my head. Right. And, um, and I realized that this had become about money, and it didn't really have any meaning to me. Mm-hmm. You know, that wasn't really where my heart was. See. But when I started to jump back into writing, I realized how much had happened in the intellectual world that I was sort of out of touch with. So I suddenly started to jump into, oh, I sat in on a class in political theory. I I started reading a lot in cognitive science. I started um, thinking a little bit about what had come out of the computer revolution that reflected Some of what had come out of my introspective practices. So, one of the things in introspective practices had been the recognition of the mechanics of thought and thinking, and even the recognition that thoughts in their own way are material, which was in its day quite a profound insight. And I think it's still a profound insight. Um, So, I had a little bit of catching up to do. Right. But I was doing some catching up. I was writing a little bit, and um, interestingly enough, uh, a woman, Eva Schmidt, and uh, she came upon something I'd written, and we ended up with quite a, a lovely email interaction, so I agreed to, to come to this conference. Well, a few weeks beforehand, Eva had sent me an article by these guys, Colin Allen, Gary Varner, and Jason Vincer about a problem that Gomenet, Toward a Future Artificial Moral Agent. And I thought it was a wonderful article. I thought they were one of, you know, they really were grappling with something. I was very excited by that article and very interested in that topic. And uh, we had a break after mine and Bernard Stahl's talk and I jumped over and went over to Bernard and said, said, you have to read this article that these guys read. I mean, it'll be very, you know, really feed into some of what you were talking about and maybe even challenge some of what your conclusions are. And the next man got up to give his talk, and his name was Colin Allen. (laughs) Uh, I remember we both were were given awards at the end of the ceremony for the quality of the papers we had presented or something like that. So we were standing next to each other. So I think that told Colin that maybe I was okay, that I wasn't. (laughs) Because I, was, you know, I wasn't in academic circles or anything at that point. I, right. was, I was kind of a wolf in sheep's clothing by that, that stage of the game. For those of you who don't know, Colin and I have now written this book, Moral Machines Teaching Robots Right from Wrong, mm-hmm. which is probably the book that comes closest to mapping this new field of inquiry called machine okay. ethics. So in the midst of this, um, as I was doing more of my research online, um, I happened upon something called the World Transhumanist Association, right, which yes. I knew nothing about right. at that point. And um, I put down my name as somebody for them to keep informed on what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And about 10 minutes later, I get this <laughs> this email or phone call, and it's from Jay Hughes, James Hughes, who's, who founded the World Transhumanist uh, Society with Nick Bostrom. Right, yes. So Jay and I immediately met up in kibitz for a while, and of course, since we're so close to each other, we've become good friends over the years. been various tensions and pushes and pulls, but yeah. uh, it's been fun watching I've enjoyed watching how he's changed over <laughs> <laughs> over those 10 years, but I'm sure he, he thinks that he's persuaded me oh, right. to become closer to his viewpoint on the world all right. In any case, Jay said, well, you know, they have just started, at Yale University, a technology and ethics working group, and why don't you come down and join that? So starting was Nick Bostrom and a, and a woman named Bonnie Kaplan, who is in medical, was a, an authority in medical informatics. Uh, the bioethics center at Yale had a number of these working study research groups, and the Technology and Ethics one had really just begun and Nick and Bonnie had started it. Okay. Nick was at Yale at that point. right? And I think he was at Yale for maybe a year or two more. And then he then he got his gig at, at, at Oxford. Mm-hmm. So I was invited to participate in that and I immediately became a stalwart of that group from, from the get-go. It, right. it was open to non-Yale people and uh, you know, I was sort of one of the first people who showed an interest. As it turned out, the World Transhumanist Association had planned, it may or may not have been their first gathering, that summer at Yale. Right, yeah. So I participated in, in one of the very early um, you know gatherings of the World mm-hmm. Transhumanist Association, which gave me a chance to meet everybody who you know, was a luminary within that universe. I mean, Right. And what was your view back then? The whole transhumanist? Um, well, my view isn't radically different, even today, from what it is then. I'm not a transhumanist. I'm, I don't consider myself in the universe of for or against. I think I very much am an ethicist. Mm-hmm. I, I very much have become that. You know, I'm more concerned with how we're going to navigate the challenges of emerging technology, uh, I see some things are more or less inevitable. Some things we hopefully will have some inflection points to to steer away from, Mm -hmm. um, if not actually not go down those roads at all. So my concern is more, well, where are we as, where's humanity heading with all these technologies? and? I've seen my role very much as both mediating, but also trying to discern where the inflection points are. And I think that's pretty much what I've become and what my identity has become over the last decade or so, is, you know, one of the voices in the midst of the reflection on the the ethical and public policy and legal challenges of emerging technologies, trying to just sort out which issues are real, which are largely ideological conflicts, where do we have actual potential tragedies or crises on the horizon, what needs to be attended to, what can be attended to. It's not even that I haven't been attracted by some of the both transhumanist ideas and some of what J. Use likes to refer to as the Neo-Luddite ideas. I right. mean I think both have some subs- mm-hmm. substance, but I think I have decided that my identity is not to buy in, but to uh, to see how clearly we can navigate the uh, you know the challenges of emerging technologies. And that's
1: an interesting position to have though, because that a lot of the more conservative concerns when it comes to transhumanism and so on uh, tends to come from more um, sort of religious sides. And uh, I'm not going to put these words in your mouth, but I might put them in my own mouth. (laughs) But also on the more transhumanist singularity side, you also see sort of things bordering on spirituality or, or, or religion almost. Very much so, um, very much so. So you are now the sober voice in the middle of all this, which is interesting.
0: Which is kind of interesting in that in that I do have spiritual interests, mm. actually very deep spiritual interests, and that still pervades yeah. my own reflections. Though I'm actually giving that a little bit more voice here than I do in most of the contexts right. I move through. I mean, uh, you know, in, in some senses i come out of the closet as far as the expression of those spiritual interests more in recent years. I feel that somehow there are things that are pulling that aspect to express itself again for me. But it's also, I'm 66 years old, and you start to look at the different facets of your life, and you look at whether this life has any... Cohesion, fabric, integrity to it, or whether these you just kind of bounce from one thing to another. Yeah. So it's hard to know whether I'm creating some false narrative or some some real narrative. But I believe it's a real narrative, and therefore I do it. But one of my projects is what I call Cyber Soul. Mm-hmm. That's a, a book I've been writing for twenty years, wow. and is always a different book. And I throw away most of what I wrote because I just feel that it's in a voice that doesn't work anymore or, you know, or it didn't work anyways. I had to write 50 pages to realize that the kinds of things I wanted to share, that voice didn't do it. It would either get too intellectual or it would, it would lose the emotive engagement. Uh, the latest form has become a little bit more biographical. Uh, So I now look at, you know, my life, for example, as having had, and this is, again, a very simplistic framework, but it's a way of talking about it. The self-understandings had three fundamentally different meanings in my life. The first was more or less characterized by the Freudian search for the, for the hidden truth. Right. And that converged with the, the birth of the youth culture in the post-World War II years So with James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause, and with Holden Caulfield, Catcher in the Rye. They were very much this embodiment of disgust and with hypocrisy Mm -hmm. and wanting to be authentic in some way. And, And I think that dominated pretty much from the 50s into the 60s. But then you had this creeping interest in altered states of consciousness, meditation, self-help psychologies, and we have this whole introspective era that certainly had its antecedents, you know, going back to, you know, some of the beatnik culture in the 50s and in the 20s with Indian sadhus showing up in Europe and America, Yogananda, the Vekinanda, the, um, the Theosophical Society, all this kind of Seething mysticisms with yeah, but it just took off it exploded somewhere in the middle of the of the sixties, perhaps too caught up in 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 what Freud used to call in over- overvaluing the power of thought oh, right yeah. there was this notion that you would understand your mind and psyche in a way in which you would have some form of freedom which. Coalided with everything from the freedom to be whatever you want to just being free from sorrow. So that was a central period. And I think we're now in a third period where self-understanding has a totally different meaning. And that's largely dominated by cognitive science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And about what science is revealing about who we are and how we function. But there's a difference. And the difference is those first two stages were largely about self-transformation. And cognitive science is largely about scientific understanding or empirical understanding.
1: Right. And scientific and transformation as well, I guess.
0: I think that's the question. I think the question is, maybe we're on the cusp where that's moving in one of two directions or possibly those two emerge in some way. And the one is, can we transform ourselves through science? you know, better living through chemistry or genomics or nanotech or whatever it is, or will it be used in the sense of people being more self-aware because they catch themselves in cognitive patterns, let's say. So they they recognize that there's a tendency for a particular kind of cognitive bias, Mm -hmm. and then they see... Oh, this may be a situation that I'm responding to with a bias. Let me slow down right, yeah. and relook at that. I think there's little inklings of that ladder, but I but it's not having the force that the transformation through through science is having. But when you look at, let's say, somebody like Daniel uh, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm-hmm. he talks about that a little bit. But in that he's a little suspicious, as has been most of science, of our ability to transform ourselves, mm-hmm. he isn't convinced that a great deal of of self-transformation will come out of you know out of that kind of introspection because one has been exposed to the intellectual understanding of your cognitive bias. Mm-hmm. And I think he's probably sort of right in that. Not not in that, not in that I don't believe there's such a thing as self-transformation, but I think that alone doesn't get it. Yeah. That's only a piece of the picture. Mm-hmm. And so part of what fascinates me right now is whether we are going to be whether the Transformation with science is going to overwhelm the more introspective, self-reflective engagement with your own mind and psyche in a way that allows us to transcend our own limitations or whether we are going to lose that entirely.
1: Yeah, I guess you can understand yourself in a way and sort of realize that, okay, I'm in a shitty mood right now, but it's because of my chemicals being out of balance in some sense. But if you catch
0: that, I mean, I don't care whether it's your chemicals or not. The difference is whether you catch and are self-aware and in that, you know. If I see that I'm in a lousy mood and it's just my chemicals, catching that in that moment is a transformative act. Precisely, that's what I mean. Because I'm no longer... Prisoned and determined by, by at least that level of the of the pattern, Mm -hmm. which I think is an awful lot of how self-understanding plays out. Anyways, there may be, there may be deeper levels that you know that may be the shadow of of something more fundamentally in terms of how the mind functions and the nature of thought and thinking, and those are reflections of the playing out of particular thought patterns or particular chemical, biochemical responses, Mm -hmm. but my concern is whether or not people will become more self-aware out of all this or we are falling into the platitudes of this scientific reductionist description of who we are in such a way that we aren't even interested Mm -hmm. in self-awareness anymore. So, are we we pathologizing human nature? we're falling into a kind of simplistic determinism, a a simplistic kind of model of causality, um, which is all very well and good, but both determinism and causality from a philosophical perspective uh, concepts that don't really hold much water. Yeah, <laughs> and yet, from a simple intellectual perspective, all choruses and everything, you know, caused by something antecedent. You know, if it's caused by five million things antecedent, all converging on this moment, are any of them determinative? And is it conceivable that you may actually have a little bit of freedom? Indeed. What kind of freedom we have? What kind of free will is real and what isn't is certainly not an easy question, but I'm a little concerned with our knee-jerk tendency to write it off. Yeah. And to think that the only kind of freedom that exists is the freedom we can get out of a pill or out of the next gadget. Mm -hmm. And yet there may be limits to what's possible within this body, Mm -hmm. you know not presuming that there's anything beyond this body, but I'm just saying limits within you know, within the reality we're, we're caught up in. Right. But but that's really, I mean, that's sort of the fundamental thing that fascinates me, and all these other things sort of feed into it.
1: Right. But do you see that, uh, the sort of missing piece of it all, do you see that as genuinely spiritual, or do you see it as possibly coming from a scientific shift that... Um, if we want to go beyond determinism and all that, is it is it because our science is so mechanistic and, and wrong in some sense, or is it that we haven't understood something supernatural?
0: Well, I hate the supernatural. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, in my own meditative work, I seem to apprehend all kinds of spaces, energies, mental states that. Don't fit very well into the existing scientific models we have mm-hmm. for the human psyche right On the other hand, that doesn't mean there isn't a science for them, and it doesn't mean that they are supernatural in this or that there's some supernatural force which is giving form to them, what those, and their manifestations are often still very material energies moving through the nervous systems. Sounds that are apparent to apparently anyone else, mental states where consciousness seems to be much more, it's more like you're in consciousness than the consciousness is in you. Right. Yeah, yeah. Does that mean there's some kind of panpsychism? Hard to know again. Mm-hmm. You know, you have people like um, Stuart Hameroff who want to say, well, consciousness is a quantum, you know, I mean, it's not, it's Hameroff and Penrose yeah, and yeah. the Consciousness is a. Quantum phenomena, and because there's massive entanglement, then that is a rationale for panpsychic experience yeah. or for transcendent experience. I don't know. You know, nice explanation. All I know is I don't think we have the science right. to, to talk about what we're experiencing. Whether there's something about consciousness. That is beyond scientific explanation or not? I don't know how you could conclude that one way or another. I, I, and I do agree with those who who react to that conclusion by saying that just stultifies our inquiry. Right. Yeah. You know. So I'm I'm very much engaged in you know how are we can get into this. You know how much can we grasp. Within our own understanding, both in terms of our first person inquiry and our third person science, right but again, I know many people who are engaged in a first person inquiry that I would call a psychotic they're just they're so caught up in overlays on mental patterns, yeah. So an awful lot of spirituality, of sports psychology, of all kinds of things have focused on... So in sports, people strive for that because I think that is an expression of being in the flow. Exactly. And they, uh, you know, they can go further and faster. Um, in meditative practices, it was very much the doorway to alter states of mind. My concern going back to the seventies when I was mentoring was that most people thought that those mental states were achieved through repressing thought. It was very clear to me, okay, we can put one layer of concepts on top of another, but that at some point what you've oppressed repressed will erupt. Right. Yeah. So part of my inquiry was very much, well, what are these thoughts and what do they want? <laughs> you know, what's really going on here? And in that kind of uh, inquiry was it possible to bring mental processes, thought and thinking in particular, to rest in a natural way, right. as opposed to a repressed. Way. Right, right, right. At some point, whether it happens accidentally or repressed, or you, you know, you it's part of your discipline in your running marathons or your or you're meditating. Uh, you learn something about that. Thoughts come to rest. You find really a vast array of mental states, but a lot of these languages about flow and oneness and engagement and being present, they all take on a rich meaning mm-hmm. within that relationship to, to your own psyche. And for many people, something like that was pointed to as a more enlightened or higher state of mind. Mm-hmm. But from another perspective, why do we give that a hierarchical meaning other than that we are hierarchical beings who like to self-aggrandize ourselves (laughs) by what we've accomplished? And I don't deny that that's an accomplishment if you discover, if you try and meditate, for example, and discover what a busy mind you have, (laughs) and that this actually may take years of work to for that kind of silence to become natural. I'm not trying to demean what what's achieved, but I also think that a lot of that is about stepping out of the conceptualizing relationship to life and living, and more in the being present in your own life and the engaged relationship to, to life and living. And in some senses, that may be uh, pretty similar to a pre civilized uh, state of mind. So, it may have evolutionary meaning. So, that's a place where you can say there's a convergence or at least that explanation I'm giving right now, which um, I haven't heard anyone else use, but I think think it has substance, um, is an example of how the introspective and the scientific can, can converge and I'm very interested in what introspective understanding might mean from a scientific perspective, but also to keep that, understand that some of that's theoretical, some of that may not be answerable, and some of that may depend upon science, which is well beyond what we have today.
1: Right, yeah. It's interesting. It also connects to uh, positive psychology, where they have been doing research on Basically, what makes you happy, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the things they've been really trying to figure out is this phenomenon of, of flow, which supposedly right. makes people lastingly happier. You're not not happy in the moment because you don't even have that kind of state in the moment, but but it makes people lastingly happier over months and, and years. Yeah. You know? yeah. So there's there seems to be something there, indeed. There is,
0: I think there is, and I think we're just converging on it. You know, in a mm-hmm. you know, a lot of different directions. Right. Yeah. This
1: brings me back to another, uh, and I just wanted to pick this term up again. You mentioned the term cybersoul. It's a term that perhaps could be misinterpreted. So I was wondering if you were able to uh, explain a bit more about it.
0: Well, interestingly enough, it was a term I coined maybe 20 years ago. But then when I went to register a website for it, I I only got to the cybersoul.org because somebody already had the com. Right. So I found that the word was being used, yeah. you know, kind of meant cyber people into soul music or you know or black oh, right. soul you know, or something. But for me, it was just saying, well, there's something about the mind which is computational, but uh, we also have consciousness. We have something. If we don't have a soul, we have something like a soul. I don't claim to have any knowledge about, you know, whether. That goes beyond death or not? I, you know, I love reincarnational stories, but you know, like Aristotle, I'm quite prepared to believe that energy flees the body when it's no longer being held by the body. Right. You know? yeah. And uh, and I imagine, it, you know, my basic presumption is it just disperses, but that doesn't mean something else isn't possible. So cybersoul is just a way of you know bringing. Those two things together in one term, and when i when I first coined the term, I thought uh, the discussion of soul was getting renewed in hip ways, right so it seemed cool then it seems a bit passe now, but, <laughs> you know still, I still use the term. I'm not quite sure whether it has quite the the meaning it did have, and now I've seen many other people use it in 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 their own way, Martine Rothblatt, you know martine or you know who uh, started the movement. yeah terrassen yeah. movement so she's a she's really a remarkable person mm-hmm. um, i have a real fondness for for martine and she's very much into uploading yeah that's one of her her things and for her basically your upload itself would be your cyber soul yeah you know, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, so but, you know I'm not at all convinced that anything you upload will have consciousness or, or self or
1: <coughs> certainly not at this time, and that's something you criticized uh, the transhumanist for as well that it might not be in principle impossible what you're talking about but but we got more pressing things to worry about right now.
0: And... I think we have more pressing things to worry about on the pragmatic level yeah I think the uh, nearly all these technologies that people are jumping into on a transhumanist level, have some real dangers in them, mm-hmm. um, and they're played down. Right. That's become part of my concern. But I also think there is this other course for humanity, which I think is keeping alive, if not revivifying this self-understanding that we can have as human beings. Right, And I don't know exactly what role, let's say, drugs might, play or not play in that a, a biotechnology, but it seems to me that uh, self-understanding self-transformation that's the kind of philosophy that really interests me um, I think that harkens more back to the Socratic tradition than, than what has passed for philosophy throughout my lifetime I'm right. sort of sad to see the kind of academic discipline take over the sense that these questions about free will and determinism are not just about learning complex jargon and being able to throw it out, around or being a scholar who has the right references in the right place. Yeah. But, but were actually very real questions that, that people at one point thought were transformative in terms of how you would relate to living. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? Precisely, yeah. That's the kind of philosophy I'd like to see renewed. Right. And the concern throughout my life has been whether that's disappearing. But I periodically have interactions with people who, you know, I still see the spark in their eyes and I see that uh, the resonance when we talk about these kinds of things. So it makes me wonder well, maybe it's, it may still be alive for the same. Know, I don't know, percentage of people as it always was, but but there is always that concern that if you don't nurture it, it will die if you don't if you don't pass on what you have perceived to make it easier for the next generation to have similar perceptions right. so that they can move on into some new territory, something is lost. Mm-hmm. Back in the nineteen twenties, uh 1930s. We had this the Frankfurt School of philosophy, mm-hmm. you know, and they were inspired by Marxism. And they, but they really their interest was really more sociological than economic. And they saw the social project of capitalism was largely to extinguish consciousness right. to woo us into unconsciousness. Mm-hmm. So I'm afraid that if we surrender the future to this scientific vision of transforming humanity through a pretty deterministic juggernaut that's in motion, that will be what prevails. Whether on the other side of that you get some people who've taken the right combinations of drugs and therefore they're more aware than you and I could ever be, maybe. But I have a feeling we'll be so caught up in dealing with young students who have blown their minds because they put together the wrong cognitive cocktails and neuro-enhancers, then that we're going to get Mm -hmm. people who truly are more in touch with themselves, are more open, are more creative. Uh, That's a little bit of what I would like to see the philosophy of the future nurture. But I'm not seeing it vocalized. I'm seeing it in the eyes of some of the young philosophers I interact with. But it's not like, you know, the sixties when you had a hothouse of people experimenting with meditation and psychosocial practices and all kinds of different rituals and so forth, seeing what they could learn mm-hmm. in the process. In my more mentoring days, there were days I would talk for fourteen hours. (laughs) It is hard to. It was like a. It was like a college bull session, but it wasn't just that. There was real energy in the room, and for us to go for fourteen hours a day, it's hard for me to believe in retrospect there were that many questions that could generate that much energy. <laughs> right,
1: yeah. Today people will start checking their phones immediately after ten minutes.
0: Yeah, it's sad. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, something's happened that, uh, that that kind of engagement just isn't valued in, a, yeah. in the same way. Um, I actually think there's an ethics implicit in all
1: that. Oh,
0: okay. And I think there's something about human de- There's a whole facet of human decision-making that we have not understood very well. And it's one of the things that I've struggled with how to write about and failed over and over again <laughs> in my own eyes. You know? <laughs> so, going back to this question of you sit down and you meditate and somebody, usually when people first start meditating, it's done through some task. Right. So, watch your breathing, bring your attention back to your... Hands, you know. I mean, you might get into vipassana and you know, scan your body. I mean, there's all kinds of rituals. There get to be thousands of these when you get when you get into them. Repeat a mantra over and over again. Breathe, you know, hung so. You know, mm-hmm. I, that, when I was first taught that that was a secret mantra, hung oh. uh, so or hung so. I was I was initiated by somebody and told them my mantra and here I am violating something I promised I would never do, was hung so, you know. In goes on the hung and out on the so, and ideate that all is one. So this was a grand secret mantra when I I first was given it back in the 60s. And uh, then I started doing some research in the Widener Library at Harvard, and just looking for anything I could find on Eastern mysticism. Mm -hmm. You know, and she flipped flip through the pages and suddenly there would be this word, this mantra, so, you know? So. <laughs> and later on it became, uh, it became evident that about 60% of people were being given this oh, okay. mantra you know, by many different groups. You know, it was just <laughs> the most common you know, mantra out there. But there was Hang So and Om Mani Padmi Hung and all kinds of rituals that people would do. There were breathing exercises, all kinds of... There's all kinds of things you can do. But the, the simple point is, whatever that task is, almost everybody finds initially they lose it. You know, yeah. they, they, they last for about five seconds and then their mind has gone somewhere and then they realize that five or ten minutes have passed and they've been totally distracted right, yes. by something else. Yeah. I don't think it's about the mantra as much as the introduction to, to your thoughts mm-hmm. and the recognition of what power they have. You and that they aren't just they have you by the throat. Mm-hmm. In fact, we're heavily conditioned by them. Once that thought comes up, it often has power over us for the next five minutes without us even realizing yep. that that's happened because we <laughs> thought we were supposed to be doing another task. But the point is whether you're trying to silence the mind or you, or you explore your thoughts and find that you come periodically to a place where your thoughts have come to rest or you explore the spaces between thoughts. There's so many different things that you might you start to explore this world of little or no thinking. And the more and more I would get into this, the more and more I'd get into dealing with new kinds of thought patterns and realizing where the where the silence lay in that. Mm-hmm. In fact, what was very helpful to me was this period I had with uh, this man who I would call my teacher or mentor without a question. His name, his name again, was Dr. P. Pikashik, mm-hmm. And I Pikashik always had this thing that he thought he wanted one student who was a bit of an intellectual, who had kind of intellectual discrimination. And we did this with, I don't know, 5,000, 10,000 different mental patterns I mean by the time we were done he said he would never desire that again <laughs> you know, I was a fulfillment of a certain kind of you know uh, student uh, you know that he had wanted to have right. and uh, and it, it was great for me but I, I understood in retrospect uh, that there were so many different kinds of mental patterns that this was uh, this was really. You know, quite something. But the point was, what would bring it to rest? Mm-hmm. And the meditative occupation was not trying to bring it to rest because that created a tension with the mental pattern itself, but it was engaging it, taking it on in a way where it would reveal itself to you, and in your awareness, you would recognize something about it or you would get in touch with something about it that would bring it to rest. Mm-hmm. So the more and more I lived with that inquiry, with that question, the more and more I sensed that there was a kind of ethic in it. Mm-hmm. Ethic in the sense that, well, what's the right thing to do? The right thing to do may be whatever allows your thought pattern to come to rest. This is a simple way. Right, yeah. yeah. But allows it to come rest in a natural way. I want to be careful about this because Son of Sam had the devil speaking <laughs> in his ears, and it led him to kill young girls, yeah. you know, in the street. I'm not, I'm not trying to get in. Apparently, that shut up the devil until, you know, he yeah. came back and he had to kill somebody else. I'm not trying to get into the psyche, psychotic thing, but I think. Actually, that process is going on in all of us when we're trying to make mental decisions. We're mm-hmm. trying to get to a place where our thoughts or our conflicting pulls are not disturbing us anymore, and we get to what Herb Simon used to call a satisficing place, a place right. where we feel comfortable, mm-hmm. where we can where we can live, and hopefully even integrated. And the embodiment of that integration is no longer being caught up in mental patterns that are pulling you this way and that, which are dividing you. And I think that's probably true for all people in most situations, because that embodies where we are integrated. Mm -hmm. This is a little bit the Bernie Barr's model of the global workspace theory, where, where What comes into consciousness, because consciousness is kind of the thin channel, is what is demanding attention. Precisely. So, this is the silent ethic. It's kind of the whole process of recognizing that most thought patterns are about something requiring immediate attention, giving it immediate attention. And oftentimes that attention is nothing more than looking at it, letting it go. Giving it immediate attention, so it can now be integrated together with all the other unconscious information mm-hmm. that's being being assimilated. Right,
1: that's interesting. Way you describe silent ethics now, and also a bit of what you said about meditation earlier. Uh, it seems that you are presupposing that humans are fundamentally good in some sense, and that we become corrupted by these mental patterns that overlay our more fundamental selves. Is that accurate? Uh, interpretation, or I don't know whether
0: we're good or bad because I think a lot of that has to do with our intention. The silent ethic is kind of an intention of a, a choice about a relationship to living. I do believe that if I'm right, and I think I'm right about this, that this is a way of living, if people could grasp it, mm-hmm. would give some meat to a lot of what they're doing anyway. And helps clarify what's workable and what isn't workable. Mm -hmm. And what is part of our nature as as organic beings that need to function in an integrated way, both integrated within ourselves, Mm -hmm. not divided by, by forces pulling us in 20 different directions. So I think if that's true, then there's a kind of implicit or intrinsic goodness in that in that as a fundamental relationship to living. And I guess I believe that in the basic sense of moral psychology, that's what grounds our ethics, Mm -hmm. that need for integration, both within and without. Mm -hmm. What corrupts us is we have been wooed into Mm worshipping mental patterns that cannot come to rest but cannot ultimately be fulfilling right right and right and in that sense we've lost our way right in that sense we're just wandering around beating you know beating our heads against the wall mm-hmm. and most of those patterns are pretty destructive on the other hand it's important to recognize that what i'm calling silent is also very close to what some people would think of as boredom or death, yeah, it isn't. What I'm calling silence is is a natural vibrancy and engagement. Exactly. Yeah. But from the perspective of the mind, it looks at first as if it's you're going to be bored because we think that life is about being more and more stimulated, or... Right, yeah, exactly. And, and there, of course, is a stimulation, there's a joy that just comes from being in the flow, or being engaged, but that's not the same as the stimulation you you may get from wild sex, or heroin, or whatever, no nice other, or being a winner, you know, <laughs> or a star, you know, you know, or having the self satisfaction of being rich or so forth. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And technology and <clears throat> tends to create new desires for us. It seems like it's getting worse. Well,
0: I mean, whether it's worse or whether it's, you know, the same old drama in a new package. <laughs> you know, I mean that's what that's what concerns me is when I hear a lot of people talking about what they're gonna get from technology. And I really hear what they want and their hope that they're going to get that from technology. And my critical ear says, well, that's what you think you want, but I'm not sure whether you're either going to get what you think you're going to get from that, Mm -hmm. or whether that will be fulfilling in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Does that mean I wouldn't mind if, if I could realize some of my, you know, some of the projects that I would like to fulfill? more effectively. Maybe Modafinil would help me get some of these books out of my head (laughs) rather than waiting for somebody to ask me to do a podcast so I can, you know, so I can share a few of these ideas. I'm afraid these will just be new distractions and new distractions that that are accompanied by the same kind of damages that some of the older distractions were accompanied by. I just wish we'd get a little bit more discrimination in place. Mm the transhumanists have all their killer apps, you know? (laughs) Longer life, you know? Um, More cognitive capability. And the latest one is moral enhancement. I mean, who could reject longer (laughs) life or that enhancement is going to make you more moral, Mm -hmm. which has been Julian Savulescu has been particularly strong on it. At least some members of that community had been, uh, you know, reined a, a bit back in, in terms of, of buying into the, the hype that moral enhancement was just around the corner yeah. if we had the right cognitive enhances. This killer app may truly be a killer app <laughs> and not, a, not an application that we can't live without.
1: This is amazing. We actually are now on two hours. <laughs> None of us have had a drink or we've gone to the bathroom or... Uh,
0: well, started. I, I mean, it's up to you whether you want to keep recording or whether you think you've got enough material for your podcast here.
1: Um, I think I have enough material, but I think I want to do a follow-up interview later on because there are still tons of topics that I want to get into here. Um, but uh, let's get some food and uh, okay. And, uh, okay. And thank Sorry. you so much for being on. This has been perfect.
0: You know, I can't tell you how wonderful it is for me to get the opportunity to talk about these things. (laughs) You know, it's kind of, you know, you you have an opportunity to talk with one person here and there, but uh, you're going to put up a podcast and maybe there'll be 10 or 12 people who will actually listen to it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. Okay, that was the story of Wendell Wallach, or at least what was left of it after having edited it down to an hour. After this, we actually talked for four more hours, and I'm just very, very grateful to Wendell for the great conversations we had. Although I'm not a very spiritual person myself, I have a deep respect for the kind of introspection and self-reflection that Wallach advocates, and I think it's a lesson many of us need to take to heart, especially those of us who have been more or less indoctrinated by the current climate, in which everything has to be instantaneous, easily digestible, and immediately rewarding. I can only hope that some of you were similarly inspired. As mentioned in the beginning, the next episode will be released on Monday in two weeks. Then I sit down with J.D. Trout, who is professor of philosophy and psychology at Loyola University in Chicago. We actually did that interview on a train, which made for a very special conversation that I hope you will appreciate where we talk, among other things, about how to use psychology in order to improve public policy and the role of philosophy in doing so. In the meantime, please help me spread the word, and I hope to see you again on Monday, September 17, for the third episode of Such That Cast.